This is episode number 177 with Cole Hatter. Success 101 Podcast. This is your host, Jared Warren. At each episode, my goal is to bring you a new concept or idea to help you maximize your full potential. Thanks for joining me here today. Now let's kick things off. Woo! Welcome back, everybody, to the Success 101 Podcast. I'm so glad you guys are here to join me today for a freaking awesome episode that I've got with my good friend Cole Hatter. I cannot wait to bring his story out to you guys. But first, I wanted to mention that if you guys are enjoying the Success 101 podcast, if you think friends, family members, others in your community could benefit from this peak performance message, I would be absolutely honored if you guys would do two things. Number one, share these episodes that really mean a lot to you. I get so many comments from you guys out there about how these episodes are impacting you. They're impacting the way you live. They're impacting the way that you go about your day, the way you think, the way you do biohacking, the way you approach success from a grassroots level. And I would be honored if you guys share those episodes with more people. Secondly, I would love it if you guys go over to iTunes and rate the Success 101 podcast. Give it a five-star review. Give it whatever review you want. But if you're enjoying the episodes, Five-star reviews are what tell Apple where this show should be ranked on featured lists and in the rankings to help get the word out to more people about the peak performance message. Thank you guys so much who have gone over there already and done that. I cannot tell you how much I thank you as loyal Success 101 podcast listeners, and I'm going to keep bringing out great content to you guys. Also, I want to mention to you guys that my team still has my book available. We have sold hundreds of these books and they continue to be getting shipped out at just the shipping cost. If you haven't had a chance to get yours yet, From Success to Significance, with the six vision-building exercises, the five components to building your strategy, to help you think like never before around your goals and ideas and how you're framing what you get up to attack every day, you got to stop by and grab one. Go to success101podcast.com forward slash the dash book. And at checkout, enter Success 101. If you're in the United States, you will pay only the shipping cost on that. If you're international outside of the United States, please select the ebook reader. We will get a copy of either one of those versions out to you guys. And I love the comments you're sending in about how it's changing your life and the way you think. Also, I'm getting more and more comments, more than ever, about the human charger. I think this thing is finally starting to stick with some people. They've probably heard me say it many times over. They've heard Dave Asprey talk about it. They've heard Ben Greenfield talk about it. They've heard Ryan Muncy talk about it. And I can't stop talking about it. I picked this thing up last September thinking maybe it was placebo effect. I knew I had a 14-day return on Amazon that I could send it back. And you guys know I ain't sent that thing back. It is amazing. I pop it in my ears every day. These bright white with blue light infused LED earbuds that I pop into my ears. That light flows down my ear canal or up through my nasal canal, depending on how I use it. And it gives the photoreceptor proteins the same feeling as if I were looking directly at the sun. Don't stare at the sun, kids. So I wake up each morning, get ready. Whenever I get into my car to leave the house, I pop in the human charger. Did it just this morning. Do it every morning. 12-minute session, and I'm done. It gives me a higher level of alertness. I feel like I need to drink less caffeine. I feel like I don't have a slump in the afternoon. But you know what? If I've ever been rocking on all cylinders and I do start feeling a little bit low in the afternoon, all I have to do is pop that thing in. Try to do it before 2 p.m. No caffeine, no human charger after 2 p.m. We want to reset those circadian rhythms 
But doing it before 2 p.m. allows you to keep that level of efficiency throughout the day where you are rocking on all cylinders and then you sleep really, really well at night. It's kind of funny how that works when your circadian rhythms are all in sync the way that they should be. To grab your own, head to success101podcast.com forward slash human charger and at checkout, enter success101 as the promo code. You guys are going to get 20% off. I've teamed up with the guys over at Valky to make this happen for you because I believe in this product. I know it's worked for me. It's worked for so many other successful people and biohackers out there who are in the know. What are you waiting for? Don't be out of the loop. Go get your human charger. Now, on to our awesome show today with my good friend Cole Hatter. Guys, this is an exciting episode that I cannot wait for you guys to hear. Cole is an entrepreneur. He's an investor. He's an author. He is also an award-winning speaker. And I love his message with what he does. He shows people how to live their best and how to do with their money what really matters financially. Stay tuned. You're going to hear a lot more about that in our podcast today. He's a father. He's a husband. He's a philanthropist. And he's got a desire to help people change their lives for the better when it comes to money. You guys will hear it in our episode today, but I want to give a personal endorsement to the Thrive Conference. This will be the third year that Cole has run the Thrive Conference. This is going to be September 29th through October 1st at the Hard Rock Hotel in Las Vegas. So many people that I know who I'm mutually connected with through Cole have told me that this is an unbelievable event that they cannot wait for each year. And hopefully I'll hear about some of you guys being there. The easiest way is go to colehatter.com, colehatter.com. Again, that's September 29th through October 1st. The Thrive Conference, Make Money Matter, at the Hard Rock Hotel in Las Vegas. Hopefully you guys will be there. Cole has an unbelievable heart and an unbelievable story. He's got a crazy story, in fact, two times in his life. He had instances which could have easily led him to despair in life, but he turned that into thriving with hard work and a determined mindset. You know what? Enough hearing from me on this introduction. I want to get you guys right over to my conversation with the one and only Cole Hatter. Cole Hatter, welcome to the Success 101 podcast. Man, what an honor it is to have you on. How are things out in beautiful California today? You know, it's weird. There's these white things in the sky. I think they call them clouds. We don't usually have many of them out here. So that's right. It's a confusing day. I haven't seen the sun yet, but uh, hopefully it'll break through here shortly. But things are good, man. How are you doing? Man, I am great. I'm here in Dallas. We have clouds a lot, unfortunately. I do a lot of podcast interviews with people out there in, in your world. A lot of the guys that you're connected with. I had uh, Mark Devine on from Seal Fit the other day, and I just heard all these birds chirping in the background. And then I, you know, sometimes people are like literally out at like a restaurant, you know, bar table by a beach or something. I'm doing podcasts with. I'm like, man, I'm so jealous for you guys. It's such great weather out there all the time. Dallas, I think, has the craziest weather ever. I'm there a lot. My wife's entire family is in Dallas. And so probably two years ago, we were at their house, the cousin's house. They have a pool in the backyard, and we're swimming. It's a million degrees on probably like a Friday. And we were flying out on Sunday and they were like, man, you're going to have to be careful because the ice storm. Now I'm in their pool swimming, getting burned. And I'm like, they've got to be joking, right? Yeah. Welcome to Texas. No kidding. Um, Within two days, it had dropped down in the 30s and was raining and was an ice storm. And we were literally sliding on the freeway. Like it was the craziest thing that in a 48 hour period, it went from 80s to 30s. And I've never seen anything like that before. So it's weird. Man, I know we're going to get into an extremely deep conversation today as we peel the layers back on your life. And I don't want to steal anything from your message. I'm going to let you speak to it. But just starting off thinking you were going to be a firefighter and then your life taking a couple of just huge detours and turns that really framed your life. You know, we talk a lot about not wanting pain as humans and we avoid pain at all costs. 
But people that are extremely successful out there would tell you that they got to where they are today because of all the adversity in their life. And I know that you are no exception to that. Why don't you start us back to where really your story of significance starts, and then we can start filling in the blanks on uh, how you got to where you are today. And first, if you don't mind, I'll take a step back even. Why don't you tell us a little bit about Thrive before you dive into your story? I know that's your baby. That's a big thing for you, and I want other people to know about that. Tell us about that, and then we'll dive into the origins of your story. Cool. Yeah. So it's like we're telling the joke with the punchline first, but the result of my life story is Thrive. And so what Thrive is an event my wife and I started together two years ago. We're going to do our third event this year. The sub theme is Make Money Matter. And what we do is we bring in some of the best business minds and thought leaders in the world. Some of our speakers have been Gary Vaynerchuk, Robert Hershevek from Chad Canfield, Grant Cardone. I mean, you know, we have probably the most star-spangled lineup ever this year. We have Jay Abraham, Les Brown for a few. And couple of others. And so there's a little bit of success in that lineup. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But this year is going to blow out the last previous years as well. Then that's no disrespect for the previous speakers. There's just even more incredible speakers. Sure, so, sure. So we bring in the greatest minds ever to teach people, you know, not fluff, but how to actually make money. And then what my job and role is of the kind of curator of content is to teach our audience how to start businesses that don't just make money, that make a difference. I call it a for purpose business. And essentially, Tom's is probably the biggest, most notable company in that space that they started their model for every pair of shoes they sell, they give a pair away. And I think everybody wants to be a good person. And if you asked 100 people, probably 99 of them would say, hey, when I'm rich and have time, I'll spend my life giving back. Yeah. And I think there's this misbelief that you have to first become successful and then become significant. And what we teach at Thrive is how to make businesses that don't just make money, but make a difference simultaneously. Like... Tom's shoes as the example, you know, at the end of each quarter, they're looking at their quarterly margins and profits and projections into the next. But at the same time, they're looking at how much they donated simultaneously because it was built in their business model. And so that's what Thrive is. And it's the culmination of my own life experiences. And I'm sure we'll get into in, in the rest of this episode. But it's something my wife and I just started living. And there was clearly people that were thirsty for it. I was asked to talk about it on podcasts and had some Inc and Forbes and Huff posts written about it. And we said, well, geez, there's clearly a community of people that are thirsty for doing more than just make money, but have businesses that make a ton of money and a difference. And so that was the creation of Thrive. And you know, we've only done it two years, but uh, there are uh, many articles that say it's the number one conference. Our feedback from the attendees is that it's the best one they've ever been to. And I give all credit to the attendees themselves because they're really what makes it special. So uh, yeah, this year we're going to get together in Las Vegas, Nevada at the Hard Rock Hotel. September 29th through October 1st, three days of just freaking amazing life-changing content. Man, that is awesome. And I just saw social media just blowing up because we are connected to a lot of the same people I've realized out there. And a lot of them were there, you know, last year. And it was my first entry, you know, to starting to learn what Thrive was and hear people talk about it. And a lot of the people were commenting the same thing you just said. They said, man, this is the greatest thing I've ever been to. Everybody needs to come out here. And so it's a really good thing that you've got going. How many years now have you had that going? It's technically been 18 months. We had our first one I thought of six months later, did it, and then a year did it. So we're actually, well, no, no, let me rephrase. We're actually at about two years, excuse me, in now, but it'll be our third event this fall. Third event. Yeah, that's what I thought. Man, that is great. And I know we'll talk a little bit more about that here at the end after we get through your story. But as you said, we're giving away the punchline here at the beginning, but that's yeah. totally cool because I want to let people know what came of this. But let's give the prequel now. Let's go all the way back to where this started. How old were you when this really transformational life change started happening and uh, walk us through that. So in junior high school is when I probably started saying, hey, someday I'm going to be an adult, so I should probably start thinking 
you know, not making definite decisions, but start thinking about what I want to do with the rest of my professional life. And uh, I just really like helping people growing up kind of in the church and my parents dragging me around on missions trips. I really liked the way it felt to help people. So I said, I wonder if there's a way I can get paid to do that and ended up pursuing firefighting. I said, if I can save lives, play with fire and get paid for it, that's perfect for me. So actually in high school, started taking college classes in the evenings and on the weekends, high school hours. So that by the time I graduated high school, I had all my prerequisites done, went right into my fire academy and started working with a department. And I knew I had my whole life figured out. That was 19 years old. And I'd put in my 30 years of retire on Easy Street. Two years into that, at 21 years old, as you mentioned earlier, I had some crazy life-changing events. I was actually in two accidents, 66 days apart. One of those accidents put me in a wheelchair temporarily. I was pretty banged up physically. It was a car accident where it was a rollover car accident, and I was ejected out of the car going 80 miles an hour and uh, had to actually be lifted in a helicopter, rushed to the hospital, the whole deal. And so, and you were 21 at this time. Yeah, I was 21 for both of them, yeah. And the other accident, I fell into a mine shaft. So one was falling into a mine shaft that was abandoned. The other one was the rollover car accident. And so those two events changed me. I actually had to move back in with my parents because I was so physically hurt. I no longer was firefighting an option. I couldn't even care for myself. I had to be like carried around the house and fed for the first little bit. And so at that point, you know, firefighting looked like it would be out. And I'd love to update your audience and let them know I've had a complete recovery. Thank you very much. Took about a year of rehab, etc. But uh, I am physically fit now and can walk and everything's good. But it was in that season of being down and out where I started evaluating my options and not knowing whether I would or wouldn't 100% physically recover was where I started looking towards entrepreneurship, which was something I dabbled with in my youth. You know, I had a couple of things I started in high school and even earlier than that. And so I had a taste of entrepreneurship and always been interested in I realized that that's the one thing I could control regardless of my physical recovery. I could start a business and, you know, whether I'm in a wheelchair, walking on crutches, a cane, you know, however well I physically recovered, I could do that. And so that's what I pursued. The car accident was in September of 2004. And then I started my business June 2005. So it took me about 10 months of nine to 10 months of just rehabbing and focusing on walking and all that stuff. And then, uh, Got started in business, and now it's been 12 years. You're a man of God. You believe in God just as I do, but I know you went through a pretty dark time after that, as many people do whenever they're going through that. What was your initial reaction? Because I know these accidents from the stories that I know, they were pretty senseless. They were pretty meaningless, it seems. And I know you went through a pretty dark time after that. Yeah, they were. And that's why I struggled, is the car accident was someone didn't check their blind spot. Based on witness reports, they said that the car veered in us. I was not the driver, by the way. My best friend in the world, Steve, was driving. Our other buddy, Matt, was in the car. I was in the back seat. And so I don't remember the accident. I had a traumatic brain injury. So I completely erased like probably a week before the accident, about three months afterwards. I don't have no memory. It's not even foggy. It's like it never happened. I just woke up in a hospital like, what am I doing here? And so what the witnesses said in the police report was that a car was changing lanes and made contact with us, which caused us to flip. And then I was ejected. Of course, they pulled over The witnesses said that they came next to me, saw that I was bleeding everywhere and out of my ears and everything, got in their car and left. And me on the side of the road, right? So luckily others pulled over and called 911. So that was that accident. And then the mine shaft accident was just a silver mining company didn't want to spend a hundred bucks on a fence or to cover the hole. So uh, Matt and I fell into it and, you know, I'm keeping the stories as brief as I can, but the result was Steve didn't survive the car accident. Matt and I fell into the mine shaft and he fell to the bottom and didn't survive either. So not only were these two accidents 66... And you were like hanging on a bush or something like that, right? Yeah. From the, if I remember correctly. 
Yeah, as I was falling in, I was able to grab onto a bush and, and eventually, you know, hang by my arms and then climb back up. But so, yeah, these weren't just crazy near-death accidents for me. Others didn't survive. And that was what really screwed me up is those were my two best friends. So the natural, what you would imagine, grieving a 21-year-old would go through losing their two best friends was one thing. But the guilt of being the only survivor was worse. And so, like you said, I went into a really dark place. I think that any 21-year-old losing their two best friends in 66 days would go through a depression. But the fact that I was in those accidents and survived, I didn't know how to process the guilt of having survived. And so... I did go into a dark place. But what's really interesting, speaking of being a man of God in faith, I went through like, I'm yelling at you, God, for like 30 days. And then it was December 19th. So the car accident was September 9th. The mine shaft accident was November 14th. And then it was December 18th, about 30 days after I fell in the mine shaft. That I'm just like looking up and yelling at God, like they're 21 years old. How dare you? Like, what were you thinking? And that's when I had my aha moment. I hit my rock bottom and said, you know what? I can't do anything to bring them back. Although I would love to, like, what am I going to do? The only control I have is the decisions I make and what I allow this incident to mean about what I allow it to mean to me. Am I going to be a victim to bad circumstances and blame God or the world that my life sucks? Or am I going to let this define me and give me the motivation to do meaningful work? And so I immediately, in a, from a ranting, yelling at God to apologizing and then talking to my friends and saying, I will not let you be forgotten. I will tell your story forever and I'm going to push myself more was kind of my aha moment. And then it was actually the church that saved me. You know, I grew up in the church, but for me, partying on Saturday night was way more important than making it to church on Sunday morning. So through my teen years, I I never lost my faith, but I would go to church whenever it was convenient. You know, I didn't never stop believing in my belief system, but it just wasn't a priority in my teens. My girlfriend and partying and being a star athlete was my priorities. And so here almost losing my life, you know, reshifted my priorities. And so I actually got uh, back involved in my church and started volunteering in the youth group and playing, you know, the music and doing the worship and all that stuff. So, and that community, they really leaned on me. I mean, they were bringing me food and, and that's what really, you know, church, unfortunately, is led by people. And so the media yep. only likes to tell stories of the people that make poor decisions within their church. And then people out there have beliefs like, oh, church are judgmental a-holes, you know, but for me, they were, <laughs> you know, because the media wants to sell drama. And so sure. when someone who's affiliated or the church itself makes a mistake. That's all you hear about. But for me, they saved me, man. They were bringing me food and encouragement, bringing over movies because uh, I was in a wheelchair. Like for a while, I couldn't even walk and watch movies with me. So, you know, since you mentioned that, that was a huge part of where my healing came from was the fact that people who I was loosely affiliated with or complete strangers, they just went to the same church as me, were bringing me food and just helping me go through that grieving mourning period. And, and you know, that was a big part of my recovery. I think it was Zig Ziglar one time said, you know, whenever people say, I don't come to church because it's full of hypocrites, he's like, hey, we've got room for one more. <laughs> just meaning, <laughs> oh, that just is, we're all flawed people. And so we're just trying to make it work out there. But let's take a step back. I'm really interested in, man, just you hit the nail on the head. You said I was 21 years old. I didn't know how to process that. And we all know, I, I try to think back. I'm 35 now, but I try to think back. What was I like when I was 21? I can't even remember that guy for good reason. You know, I don't want to remember that guy. And maybe I'll say the same thing 10 years from now. We should if we're all growing. But anybody as a 21-year-old is just so immature about the way they think about the world. You haven't had a lot of life experience. And all of a sudden, your two best friends within 66 days of each other are gone. And you on a very, sounds like with your story, on a very quick turnaround, went from this you know point of being upset and rage and anger and why did this happen and this was senseless to, hey, now I'm going to make a purpose out of this. What do you think it was that really turned that around for you just with your limited life experience, 
most people would have stayed in that season for a very long time. And the reason I'm asking you this is I'm sure there are people out there could be who are listening to this that maybe have been in that season or could be in that season at some point down the road. I'd love to know how you can teach us to frame things better, even in your lack of just life experience and how you turn that around so quickly and how you can help others through that. So I didn't know what I was doing in the moment, right? But looking back at some of the decisions I made, one of the things that I started focusing on is what I could control. I didn't like feeling depressed and, you know, trying to be as concise in my answers. There's stuff I've left out. Like, for instance, after the car accident, I was prescribed very heavy pain pills like morphine. Um, They're prescribed to me. I was supposed to take them, but I started taking more than I was supposed to and drinking hard alcohol with it because it would knock me out. I'd pass out at like four o'clock in the afternoon. I wouldn't wake up to like 11 a.m. the next I'd sleep for like 18 hours. And I was doing that because I wasn't suicidal. I wasn't trying to kill myself, but I did not want to be alive. And so I realized, you know, after 30 days of that, from losing Matt till that December 18th day, it was actually in my bedroom at my parents' house. I just popped the pills and was ready to knock myself out, go through my normal routine when I hit my aha moment. And one of the things I realized is that uh, like I can control my decisions. So I felt out of control and I'm a bit of a control freak, right? But the fact that Steve was gone, I could do nothing about it. The fact that Matt was gone, I could do nothing about it. I felt out of control. One of the things I realized is that I still can control my decisions. I don't have to play the victim card and then, you know, oh, the depression was too grave. You know, I gave my life away to drugs and alcohol. I said, no, 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 I can still have complete control. So the first thing I realized is I'm going to take small steps in, in the right direction of the things I can control. I can't decide tomorrow to not miss Steve and Matt, but I can decide tomorrow to stop drinking and taking pills. And then, okay, once I got through that, okay, I can't bring them back still, but I can decide to do work that would honor them. And so everyone knows that life is precious. There's 10 trillion quotes about live it up. You know, you only live once, blah, blah. But I really have a strong sensitivity to time, I believe, because of the way that I'm wired and my life experience is that I'm on borrowed time twice. And so I just have this insatiable like impulse or motivation or urgency is probably a better word. I feel a daily urgency of making it matter because I really feel like I'm on borrowed time and I don't have time to waste. And so that realization was good. And then the question, follow-up question is always, well, Cole, do you have to have a near-death experience to take that? Um, absolutely not. You know, it's just a mindset. It's just making a decision about how you want to spend your time. So I think those two things is number one, I focused on. So for anyone who's in a situation like I was in, I focused on what I could control. I can't change the past, but I can change what the past means about my future and the behavior and the decisions I make in my future that I completely control. And I have to own that. That's pointing thumbs, not fingers, right? I can point fingers. Oh, that person didn't check their blind spot and crashed into us. I can point thumbs and say, what am I going to do about it? Uh, what am I going to let that mean? And then the other thing is, I don't believe that I survived those accidents to just tiptoe through life and arrive at my grave safely, having not yeah. mattered or done anything. I really believe that I have been given time that Steve and Matt did not have. And so I feel like I almost owe it to them as an obligation to to make my life triple important. So I do enough for all three of us. And those are the two things that I did. I associated my grieving with action. And I said, man, what a shame it would be for me to be the only survivor and piss my life away. How much better would it be for them that I made my life matter? And so I went on this war path of making my life matter so that when I get to see them again someday, I can say, I have no idea why I made it and you two didn't. I don't know why I draw the, the straw and you guys had to lose your lives at 21. But look at what I did with the time I had left and I did it for you. 
That's so important. It just goes back to everything being a mindset. And I know I'm sure you believe in that as well, just with your life experiences, because you've lived it out. But so many people out there, they see it as this is the end of the road. You know, even at young ages, 21 years old, like for you, there's got to be people out there that have, you know, lived their life in this dark cloud of either, either depression or anger based on circumstances that happened whenever they were younger. And it's not easy. I don't mean to say this like it's easy. And normally we have to, you like you said, you don't have to go through a near-death experience, but normally it's those rock-bottom moments that make us change in our life. And either we're going to take the path of the positive mindset path, which again is not hocus-pocus, pie in the sky, whatever. It's real. And you're living it out in your life now and doing amazing things with amazing people. And maybe it did, by the way you're wired. Maybe it did take something like that, unfortunately, to make you realize how short time is and what you could really make of your life. But some people out there haven't made that decision yet. And I just want to speak a strong message to our listeners today of a message of mindset that no matter what you're going through, you can't control what everybody else is doing. You can't control circumstances around you in many cases, but there's so much about ourselves, which starts with our brains and our mindset, that we can do amazing things, just like your message of thrive. We can thrive in this world by just choosing. It's about making a choice to put one foot in front of the other and just starting a different path today. So man, thanks so much for that message of... Well, one more thing I want to throw into that too, Jared. You were talking about the mindset. I didn't just you know, muster up the strength too. I did a lot of therapy and like, and work on myself too. So I want to throw that out there as well, that if anyone's in that place, I didn't just flip a switch one day and everything was fine. I went through years of either one-on-one counseling, group counseling or grieving groups. So like I did work, right? If you're overweight, you don't just decide to be skinny. You, it is a decision, but then you have to follow up with insane action, right? You could say, Hey, I'm sick and tired of being overweight. That decision happens in a second, but now it's followed by a year of dieting and exercise to 12 months later, have your dream body. And so I made the decision to not be a victim instantly, but then it was followed by a good year of personal growth and development from therapists to reading books to prayer, meditation, the whole deal. So I just want to throw that out there too, that yeah, no, no, no. Thanks so much for throwing that in. That's a great point. You have to do the work. Absolutely. But like I said, your first step of turning on a dime was the decision to put the foot forward in the right direction Whereas some people just aren't even, they're not even willing to take the step in the right direction to start doing the work. So I'm so glad you clarified that. You know, we can go south from the beginning as well if you're not willing to put in the work. So fast forward to where you are today. You're now obviously a successful real estate investor. You're a speaker doing like 50 plus, you know, events a year. Obviously the founder of Thrive, as we mentioned, one of the best entrepreneurial events in the world. I'm, I'm so excited for the future to be able to check that out as you keep doing great things with that. And tell us about how all of that started coming about. Because again, you can have the mindset in the right place to start putting in the work. You can put in the work, but then still kind of have that feeling of being a victim, as you mentioned, versus how do I thrive? And how did you get there? So three things. I went to Haiti as an emergency responder after the earthquake in January, part of a nonprofit where from my medical and firefighting background, I get deployed in times of natural disaster. And so I got to go to Haiti while most of the world was watching on the news I got a round trip airfare, you know, invitation. So I went there and it completely rocked my world being there and seeing what true problems look like, you know, in America, their entire country fell in a matter of two minutes of an earthquake. So that really kind of screwed me up in a really good way. So that was number one as I went to Haiti. Number two, I came home and quit my real estate business in February of 2010. My dad and I had been struggling to keep it profitable. We're in the recession, right? With real estate had collapsed. And so How much time I spent on just keeping my Cadillac Escalade payment paid didn't seem like a priority after spending time in Haiti. (laughs) 
And right. I was just like, Dad, I'm over it. So I quit my real estate business. And then the third thing that happened was my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, I gave the punchline away. She dumped me. We were dating. We were boyfriend and girlfriend. And on May 5th, Cinco de Mayo, she broke up with me for personal reasons. I still had a lot of baggage from Steve and Matt. And I made a decision that I would never marry anybody because the people I loved the most were dying in my life. So that was a poor choice of how to deal with losing Steve and Matt. And so she said, hey, listen, it's been two years. I don't need a proposal, but are you at least interested in marriage someday? And I said, no, you know, I can't marry you. I can't have kids. I don't want to care about people like that. So she said, all right, cool. Wow. Peace. And so, you know, Haiti, ending my business and ending my relationship, I ended up moving to Mexico on June 1st of 2010. And I lived down there for seven months. And I just said, screw business, screw everything. You know, I don't have a girlfriend anymore. I'm just going to go down and do philanthropy. So I moved to Ensenada, Mexico, which is about three hours south of the border. I live, as you know, in Southern California. So about a five-hour drive from where I live, maybe six. And uh, I just started seven days a week doing philanthropy, surfing, eating tacos. I joined the staff of a nonprofit that's based down there. And I was building houses for homeless families and ended up helping start an orphanage while I was down there, which I still have to this day, seven years later. And so, is that why you chose Mexico was because of a certain nonprofit that was down there? Or did you, was it just the closest place to you that you could get to quickly? Yeah, no, I just love Mexico. I surf and it was a beach city on the, with one of the most famous breaks, San Miguel's ever. So I went down there to just get away and said, well, if I'm going to be down here kicking rocks, I might as well, you know, help people. So, right. It was, I mean, it was both. I obviously did the, I didn't just show up and say, hey, nonprofit, do you need help? I looked for nonprofits in that city and found one, but I had made the decision to get to Mexico even beforehand. And after seven months of being down there and focusing on philanthropy and literally just giving back, um, I found the healing I needed. I completely got through the cloud that it's still six years after losing Steve and Matt, right? That was 2004. It's now 2010. I still have that subconscious depression where something about serving others selflessly gave me total healing, came back to America, asked my ex-girlfriend to marry me. We weren't even dating. We hadn't even spoken. It had been 10 months. Wow. I didn't even know she had a boyfriend. I didn't care. I showed up. I was like, hey, I'm back. I don't live in Mexico anymore. By the way, I love you. I want to marry you. And she said, yes. So she's now my wife. So I got her back. And then, nice. you know, we made some decisions. And while I was in Mexico, so this is a long answer to finally, here's the answer to your question. No, I love it. While I was in Mexico, I was able to help people monetarily. I would take a few dollars and feed someone or a few hundred dollars and feed 21 orphans. And I got obsessed with making my money matter where, you know, donating to a nonprofit like the Red Cross is great because you know your money's helping someone somewhere. But me physically going to the grocery store, spending my own money on food and then watching orphan children who are hungry now eat gave me this obsession of wanting to do that. And I realized that by just doing philanthropy, I was extremely limited financially on how much of an impact I could make of not just volunteering time, which is the greatest gift we can give, but actually having money to do things with my money to matter for others. And so came back to America, asked that beautiful girl to marry me. She said yes and said, hey, let's build businesses that change the world. Instead of starting a nonprofit, let's start a business that takes care of people. And she loved it. And so that's what we did from about 2010 to 2014. And then as my network changed, and as you said, Jared, you know, we have a lot of mutual friends that have real big podcasts like my buddy John Lee Dumas, I, you know, Entrepreneur on Fire. And they would ask me to talk about these business models and, and how my wife and I were living our lives. And it went like wildfire. And so again, that's how we created Thrive. But what the pivotal changing moment for me was in my entrepreneurial career was I had already quit. I turned my back on business and said I would literally do philanthropy the rest of my life. 
I'm not going to worry about money. I'm not going to have cars anymore. I'm just going to be like a nomad traveling the world, helping people. But seeing how such few American dollars could make such a massive impact in these most poor areas of Mexico called colonias or colonies essentially, but colonias was like, okay, I want to go home and make millions of dollars so I can do this a million times over. And I just became obsessed of building businesses that were profitable to live my dream life guilt-free. It's not like I'm you know, some martyr. I mean, I've recording this podcast from my dream home that I own, that I live in, and my dream cars are in the garage and on the driveway. So it's cool though, because it's proportionate, right? Like how much I spend on myself proportionally to how much we give away, my wife and I feel good about it. And so it's a guilt-free success model where I am so monetarily driven, not because I need another car, but because I want to start another orphanage. And when you, it sounds cool, but when you actually emotionally experience making money matter, it resonates in a way. You know, people say you can't buy happiness. I say that's actually full of crap. Try buying a starving child a meal and tell me your money didn't just buy you happiness watching them eat. And so being able to buy myself happiness, I became obsessed with it and just wanted to make millions of dollars so I could buy more happiness. And it's all about your purpose. And as we mentioned earlier, your significance, you know, yeah. you said you don't have to have success to have significance. You know, I wrote a book last year called From Success to Significance, which throws people off because they're like, your podcast is called Success 101. It's like, well, I started that before I wrote the book. But what I realized was, is you can have a lot of success in life, success on paper, success in a competition, you know, whatever. But what are you doing in your life? And what does that do? And I think a lot of people will get to the end of their life and go, man, keep all the success out there. I just remember the significant parts of my life. That's what I want to hold on to. And that's, you know, that's what you're doing there is that significant part of that. I'm curious though, why, and we don't have to dive into this too far for the sake of time, but I'm curious, you've got a very unique personality here. And again, I'm just putting myself in the shoes of people out there who maybe are listening. There may be people out there right now who are confused a little bit going, man, he told his then girlfriend that I can't love you. I can't love people. I can't have kids. I can't love people like that. But then here you are going down to this, you know, doing philanthropy and giving back to all these people. I'm curious what spark inside of you, even with all the depression and everything you were going through and everything you were having to work through, what made you want to go give to other people so much, which eventually turned your life around. But why did that flame stay there with you when outwardly you were telling people like her, I can't love people in this way anymore because everybody I love gets taken away from me. You were still going and loving on other people. What do you think made that dynamic happen on both sides of the coin there? Yeah, this is the first time that's ever been asked. So kudos to you. And I'm trying to think of why other than it just being natural evolution of my life. And so specific to Sonia and children, like I didn't want someone in my inner circle. I couldn't do anything about the fact that I had parents and sisters and, you know, immediate relatives. But I was like that core group of people that hurt the most when they die. I'm not adding anyone to it. Wanting to then go and love people. I guess I was keeping them maybe at an arm's length distance. I don't know. Like it's a double-edged sword or it's contradictory, right? That, hey, I sorry, I can't marry you, but I'm going to go love on people. And I think, I don't know why I did that other than it just felt right. And like I said, the whole reason I wanted to be a firefighter is that I wanted to help people. So it was how I was wired and designed that I, that I got a taste of that in childhood through the church that I then through my adult life wanted to continue to do it, that that's just what I fell back on. Also, my commitment to Steve and Matt, I promised them I'd make my life matter. So even though I never wanted to get married. I couldn't kick rocks. So I think that intimate, not necessarily sexual, but that intimate love you have with your most inner circle of direct bloodline parents, you know, wife, husband, or children is what I was in my mind saying I would never do. But just generally giving back to a community or a group of people and loving them through my actions and words, I felt maybe safe enough. I don't know. Yeah, maybe it was the commitment factor yeah, of, of committing to something and then having it pulled away from you. But I think, you know, just to affirm you, I think what it speaks to 
is just what you said, your wiring. I mean, you were in a confused time of losing people that were dear to you and working through that. But I think your inner self, your inner wiring, the way you were created was just kind of screaming out like, this is what I was made to do. And that's why you're doing it. You know, he's still even to this day. That's why you're with Sonia, you know, now and went back and got her. And I just think there's so many of us out there walking around thinking, man, I'm in this place that is just not where I thought I would be or not where I want to be. And we just got to listen to deep down how we were wired. We're way more powerful, way more creative, way more. We've all been created with so many abilities that, again, going back to that mindset and we have to work through it. But that needs to be tapped into. And that's what you're doing right now. And that's just so awesome to connect your life with that significance. Thanks, man. How do you think your mission today, you know, remembering your friends, having a family of your own now, those sort of things, just really starting up the business, quitting the real estate and starting the business with a purpose, those sort of things. How does your mission with Thrive today connect with your values and growth that you've had in your life? And what is the future really for for you, for Cole Hatter and Thrive? What is that? What do you think that looks like long term if you could really map it out? As far as my core values, it's like the physical encompassment of what my core beliefs are. I'm an entrepreneur by trade. So of course, I'm going to have a business conference. I, through my life, have got to do philanthropy. And that's where I've felt the most alive of anything I've done other than becoming a parent, you know, and the personal things. But of all the work, like, you know, I've had really big years. I made more money last year than I ever have. It looks like I'm going to do it this year. And that's all exciting. But it doesn't feel as good to me personally, the way I was wired as like having an orphanage or, you know, working with Pencils of Promise and building schools for children who have no access to education. It's just, I don't know. I think the world tells you that you're going to be happy in your stuff. And most people don't have stuff, so they spend their whole life pursuing it. But then you see men and women who are extremely wealthy, who are in and out of rehab or totally unhappy. And so clearly there's no connection with having stuff like money and monetary possessions and being happy. It's what you do with your stuff that makes you happy. And I think that I had an accelerated life lesson of learning that in my 20s. And I think what people see me now and how I act is just the natural progression of people who have had money and not been happy with it, and then had money, done great things with it, and be happy with that. So so I think that's where it comes from. As, as far as the future, man, I'm just going to keep sharing it because I know that people who buy into this, like there are so many testimonials of people who come to Thrive who had existing businesses who converted them to for-profit. I'll use a guy named Tommy and his, his business partner, Nick, for an example. You know, they had a pool company where they would install pools, like dig holes and put pools in people's backyards. They turned that into a for-purpose business and they're feeding like 1,200 kids a month now. They partnered with a local nonprofit. They're actually in Houston, speaking of Texans. They're down in Houston. And they're feeding 1,200 children a month now through the profits wow. of the business because they created a for-purpose business. So, And then, man, you should see them. They're whole new people. Like Tommy and Nick are entirely new men because of what feeding children has done to their souls. And so seeing it happen to me and then seeing that it can duplicate in others, that's just one example. I've got 500 examples of people who have converted their businesses to for-purpose businesses because of Thrive that has changed their life. And then what's the byproduct? There are now 1,200 kids that are eating that weren't before. And you know there are so many different examples. That's what Tommy decided to do. But there are other examples of people in the Thrive tribe, as we call ourselves, that have created this for-purpose aspect to target a, t- a totally different uh, demographic. There's a woman, Claudia, who is uh, fat. She says she found her life purpose at Thrive. And she's now working with, unfortunately, there's human trafficking everywhere. It is prevalent in the US like anywhere else. And a lot of these girls that get caught in human trafficking get deported back down to Mexico and just get left at the border. And they have like no life now. They were stolen from their lives, brought to America, caught, deported, and now they're just living in the streets. She's ministering to those girls now and she found her connection 
at the actual Thrive event and has created a for-purpose business now to fund getting those women back on their feet and having a life again. So it's like the reason and what the future looks like that I do this is what I need to do to feel alive. I can't just make money for money's sake. And now that I see it impacting our community and changing Claudia's life and Tommy Nick's life forever is number two. And then number three, what's the result? Kids are eating because of Tommy Nick. Women who have been human trafficked are getting a life again because of Claudia. And those are just two examples I came up with off the fly. I can give you, like I said, 500 others. So what the future looks like is making the message bigger. At Thrive, we're going to have a thousand attendees this year. And then, you know, everyone spreads it. So there's a limited impact. What my future looks like is I want to create movies. I don't want to be an actor. I want to be an executive producer where I do the fundraising, hire the directors, the actors, and all the creatives because I don't want to be in front of a camera. I don't even want to be behind the camera because I don't know lenses and angles and all that crap. But I want to bring together amazing men and women who are talented actors, directors, all the creatives. And I want to run the business side of fundraising, getting it into theaters, getting it with a you know a production studio, et cetera, because that's where I thrive to start telling stories of movies where now hundreds of thousands or millions of people can watch it that make the same result of writing a story around real people or made up characters that are choosing to run for purpose businesses that change the world. Because right now I believe that media is the largest platform to get the word out. And so that's where I'm going. My future is I will be executive producing small budget films, like $5 million films, not like freaking, you know, Brad Pitt million, hundred million dollar films, but like $5 million films with goals of getting into maybe a thousand theaters here in the U S for, I don't know, six weeks, maybe three to six weeks and then going to DVD and translating it and spreading it internationally because I can have more people watch a movie that makes them want to live their life this way than I can fit into a room to teach in three days. You know, I'm sure there's a lot of people out there that maybe, I don't know if naysayer is the right word, but maybe somebody who's thinking, okay, this guy has obviously found a way to make money. You know, even though he's talking about significance, he's got his dream house, he's got his dream car, he's got his dream girl, he's got all this stuff. Well, of course he can spend time focusing on giving a lot of that away to other people. Every single instance that you've mentioned so far, and I'm sure, like you said, you've got tons of other ones you could mention, but every single instance I've heard so far is people were acting in the, they were going through the acts of selfless service before the path that they're on today happened. So for you, you said, I want to be a firefighter because I wanted to help people. The lady that you mentioned, Claudia, she's, you know, got a urge to help people. And so she turns her business into a for-purpose business. Time after time, you've mentioned certain things where it's like they were acting it out first, then found the path to get there, and now are giving that significance back. So I think that's important for listeners to hear also is that you've got to have that in your heart. It's not like, oh, I'm just going to go make a bunch of money, and then I'll be really willing to give a ton of it away. In fact, it is probably going to be the opposite. If you don't start off the right way, you're going to get a bunch of money and then realize how intoxicating that is and then want to hoard it. And so you've got to start taking those actions in the right steps today. So then the significance will come from that. I just think that's so awesome. As we get ready to wrap up the podcast here, I'd love to know just where do you think leaders today or entrepreneurs today, where do you really just see them missing the mark and not growing, not thriving, not building to the path that they want to be on? Where is that mostly, you know, those missteps, where are they mostly happening for leaders and entrepreneurs today that you're visiting with? I think it's a keeping up with the Joneses mentality. I think that entrepreneurs are competitive by nature. I think that's what drives us into, you know, free enterprise and going through the pain of being an entrepreneur, like, why would we torture ourselves, right? If we weren't competitive. And so <laughs> right. I think entrepreneurs are very nearsighted. Here's what I'm going to say. They want to have better quarterly numbers than the previous. They want to be the best in their niche and they want to, in their circle of, you know, at their country clubs, et cetera, have the nicest cars, the largest houses and et cetera. And that's all cool. I'm not saying that's bad, but that's as far as they take it. But, you know, I think people should fast forward and be more farsighted and look at their funeral and say, 
you know, when the microphone's passed at your funeral, do you really want people to say, oh, yeah, at the country club, he had the nicest cars and took the longest vacations? Because what a shallow, meaningless life that would be. I encourage people to think long-term and say, what's the legacy that I'm leaving? And it's not money. You know, you're not leaving a legacy cool, so you're able to donate to a hospital and you have the West Wing name after your last name of your family. Awesome. But like, what's your true legacy going to be about? You know, when I die and that day's coming for all of us, you know, I want people to be fighting over the microphone. I want to have a sellout crowd at my funeral and I want people to be fighting over the microphone to share stories of the meaningful impact I made in their life with the resources, relationships, and abilities and moments I had while I had them. And I think most people don't think about their business and their action is their first focus. I think that most people should decide who they want to be, make that their focus, and then build a, a business that supports that. And that's what my wife and I did. We built our dream life of what parents we would be, of what companies we would own, and the impact we would make in the world. And that was our North Star. And then we've built businesses to support that mission. I think most people just build businesses and support their business and live around it. I guess that's it. Most entrepreneurs build a business and live their life around it. My wife and I designed the dream life to a T of literally how we would give back, not just of the type of money we'd make, et cetera. And when we had a very clear vision of who we wanted to be as human beings, we then built a business that supported that lifestyle. And I think people get it backwards. If someone hears this and they go, man, I do have a heart to serve. I do have the entrepreneurial spirit in there somewhere as well. I want to design a business to where I can do the actions first of mapping out how I'm going to give back. But wow, how does that, you know, non-profit or non-purpose message for someone who's a little bit stuck today, how do they just start putting one foot in front of the other? What's the best thing? Because you've got tons of stories of people who have done it. What is the best thing for someone that feels a little bit stuck today to live out that purpose and vision, to really go out and map out a business, to start with the right priorities in place, but then build what they want to do underneath that if they're a little bit confused on how that works? Step one is find something that deeply resonates with you. You may have a child with autism, so maybe that's something that personally resonates with you. You may be an animal lover and cruelty at shelters resonates with you. You could be an uh, environment lover and pollution and going green resonates with you. So all of us are wired differently to not just appreciate or be interested in, but feel deeply called towards something. So number one, figure out what that is. And then number two, find a community around that. So let's just say we'll go with the autism thing. I've helped out a nonprofit called TACA, T-I-C. It's called Talk About Curing Autism. There are always communities, no matter how niche you feel. No, 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 Cole. I want to protect endangered lizards in the rainforest of South America. I guarantee you there's a community that wants to protect that same lizard. So number one, find out what it is that you deeply resonate with. Number two, find a community that are already about supporting that initiative or that cause or that cure and get involved, get into that community, create relationships and give back first with your time and figure out what the needs are within that community. And then the last step is start a business, something that you know is within your skill sets, your understanding, right? Don't start some random business that you couldn't run, but something that gives back to that community, gives back to that organization that is already established or start your own if you're really ambitious, right? But the first step is figuring out what it is that you want to do. And number two, finding an existing community that's on that war path and plugging in. Buddy, thanks so much for your time here today. And just again, I want to affirm you for just living out your wiring that, you know, many of us were, <laughs> we all have personalities that are set by the time we're six or seven or whatever, but then life events happen and we can either choose to work through that and start pursuing our passion and our selfless purposes, or we can uh, pursue success just for the purpose of success and making money. And again, like you said, the best car at the country club and on and on. But thanks so much for all that you're doing for people out there and all that you will do. Where can we steer more traffic toward you and Sonia and everything that you guys are doing so that we can get the message more out about what you guys are doing? 
attendthrive.com is the website for our event Thrive. So you can head over to attendthrive.com. And then on social media, it's just Cole Hatter, one word. So that's everything. Snapchat, Instagram, Facebook, just one word, Cole Hatter. But I guess that's it, you know, is if you're interested in the event or at least some of the content, go to attendthrive.com. And if you want to follow us, that's it on social media. That's awesome. I'll link it all up in show notes. We wish you the most and significant success out there as you continue to do what you're doing. And I can't wait to see uh, what all comes your way through your selfless efforts of what you're trying to put together for so many out there. So thanks so much for your time today, buddy. Thanks for having me, man. Take care. Bye-bye. Guys, I loved having Cole on the podcast today. I love his message of Thrive, what we're doing to make money matter. And hope you took a ton away from his talk today of how he turned seemingly disparaging situations through hard work and mindset into that same level of thriving in his own life. If you guys want to connect directly with me, shoot a message to my team at info at success101podcast.com or you can catch me in the world of social media on the Success 101 Podcast community Facebook page or on Instagram under the name Success 101 Podcast. I'll catch you guys on the next awesome episode. Until then.